Hi, this is Jim Lobato, and I'm president and founder of a company called Performance Group. You're listening to the podcast version of a program that originally aired on the BizTalk radio show. I started BizTalk so you'd have access to today's leading experts about growing your company and yourself. BizTalk is produced by Performance Group. At Performance Group, we work at the front end of a company's revenue stream. We find the salespeople who generate the revenue, and we provide onboarding programs that get them doing that sooner. Our passion is aligning talent with opportunity. That's why we're known as a Salesforce development company. Enjoy the program. On our program today is George Anders. He's a contributing writer at Ford's Magazine, exploring issues related to talent, recruiting, and innovation. He has spent two decades as a top feature writer for the Wall Street Journal, where he was part of a team that won a Pulitzer Prize for national reporting. He's also written for Fast Company, the New York Times, Bloomberg View, and the Harvard Business Review. He's a New York Times bestselling author for one of his previous works, and he joins us today for his new book, The Rare Find, How Great Talent Stands Out. George, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for the chance to be part of the program. Well, I'm excited having you on the program today because talent seems to be the elusive thing that people tend to look for and tend to be one of the most misunderstood things. So let's talk about that for a second, George. Let's talk about this quest in American businesses to go out and find talent. Why does it appear to be such an elusive thing for us to find? Well, in a way, we're trying to look into the future. We're trying to guess how a candidate's going to perform both in a job that we've defined pretty clearly and also in a work environment that keeps changing. So we're hiring people to do things that we don't even know what they're going to be. And we tend to approach this by looking backwards and examining uh, people's resumes, what they've accomplished in the past, and you can't always extrapolate from one to the other. So uh, in my book, The Rare Find, one of the things I talk about is putting more emphasis on character and success markers so that we kind of anticipate what sort of person would succeed here as opposed to just looking for a resume checklist. I think right now we tend to overemphasize uh, paper credentials and spend less attention than we should really thinking about does this person have the the tenacity, the ingenuity, uh, the motivation, the drive, the desire to succeed in the job as opposed to just someone who's checked a lot of boxes along the way but may not be right for our organization. Well, that seems to be like a pretty radical idea, George. I mean, to to go out and look for those type of qualities. I mean, what would lead you to believe that going in that direction is going to produce better results than, let's say, the traditional way we've been doing it? So I spend a lot of time looking at how top-tier organizations do approach talent. And uh, I spend a couple weeks with Army Special Forces looking at how they select uh, the most elite uh, soldiers, I spent some time with Johns Hopkins Medicine looking at how they pick top-tier doctors, and I was struck that in each of these situations, very different fields, but a very similar approach, Uh, much more of a willingness to emphasize the character, personality, the drive, and the the effectiveness on the job, as opposed to credentials. So uh, these are proven methods. These have been tried in organizations that get talent right. And they find that you can let go a little bit of some of the paper credentials as long as you're getting people whose feet are pointed in the right direction. Uh, you can always teach people new skills. It's much harder to teach people a different personality. Well, before we get into some of those companies you refer to in the book, let's talk for a second about how these top companies really take a non-conventional approach of looking at top talent. And what are, what are some of the common barriers that are preventing 
businesses today from taking that approach? Well, and one of the, the tilts that there is within the recruiting world is you hate to have a hire blow up in the first 90 days, and that's going to come back and you'll be held accountable for it. So there's a tendency not so much to hire people who could really succeed, but to hire people with a low risk of failing right away. And that tends to take you more toward the experienced non-expert. You're looking for someone who's done something pretty similar for a long time, and they don't have to have done it all that well. You're just trying to match and say, you know what, there's very little risk attached to this person. And again, something that I found when I was doing the book is that the braver organizations are willing to ask what can go right as opposed to just spending all their time worrying about what can go wrong. And I found there were a lot of interesting examples from um, performance-related fields, whether that movies, music, the arts, sports. And there you do need to be willing to take a chance on people. You do need to be willing to try someone who hasn't competed at your level before because, after all, you're bringing them up. You're, you're offering them an opportunity bigger than what you've had. And a lot of the biggest stars in these fields uh, tend to be people who don't have tremendous experience but do have tremendous potential. So um, that's another one of the keys is being willing to hire on the basis of potential uh, and having confidence in your ability to tell who can grow on the job. Is that what you refer to in your book, uh, The Lottery Ticket? Because you you write about the fact that Garth Brooks was discovered at the Bluebird Cafe in Nashville, Tennessee. That's a a good example to invoke. I mean, there's someone who a lot of people heard and they said, oh, we don't like him. You know, he he doesn't look glamorous. And why would he be a pop star? And the answer is because he can really connect with a crowd. And you could get him out of the Bluebird, which is, you know, a cafe that seats a couple hundred people, and into a stadium that seats tens of thousands. And he just gets better the bigger uh, an auditorium, the bigger a venue you give him. And the really successful scouts are able to see that in people. You and I had a chance to talk previously, and, and you made a comment I'd like to have you elaborate on again. You said that HR, our human resources departments, they're doing the best that they can in a broken system. What do you mean by that? So it starts with what are we actually looking for in each candidate, and if you hand the HR department a description that's a little out of step with what the job is, you can come up with someone who's a perfect match for the description you've been given, but they still may not be all that successful in the job. Uh, You've also got a challenge where HR alone can't do every single aspect of getting the right people in, You need the line managers who are actually going to be in charge of that person to be involved, to be committed, to be part of the interview process. And in many companies, there's a feeling of, you know what, I'm too busy to to hire. Uh, I'm going to let someone else do the hiring for me, and then I'll just take whatever they give me. And those tend to be the managers who then are most frustrated that they're not getting exactly what they're looking for. Well, you know what, if hiring actually is one of the most important decisions you can make as a manager. And I'd say better hiring begins with line managers being willing to invest the time to meet a lot of candidates, interview them with skill and insight rather than just asking them the first question that pops to mind, and having a very clear idea of what they really want as opposed to just picking someone who was pleasant and didn't seem threatening. That um, Successful job interviewing is a skill in itself. It's not like having a conversation. It's not like doing a legal deposition. And you need to know how to size up that candidate. So an HR department that's stuck trying to get the right people without enough buy-in from the rest of the organization is working in a broken system. You talk about hiring off a of potential. In your book, you refer to that as a jagged edge resume. Tell our audience what you mean by that. So I'm glad you introduced that idea because it's an important part of my book, The Rare Find. 
And what I'm talking about when I say the jagged resume is people who have a couple really standout skills or dimensions to their candidacy, but they also have some uh, bumpy spots. They may not have a lot of direct experience in this field. They may have had some career setbacks before, or they may just have you know, a personal demeanor or style that doesn't look like they came out of central casting. So I, I do a baseball example of Tim Lincecum, the Cy Young Award-winning pitcher who was considered too short to be effective in the major leagues. Well, you know what? He's got a very distinctive delivery. He's able to play. That's a jagged resume candidate. Spend some time talking about how the University of Utah built up a really world-class group of uh, computer graphics specialists. That's where the people who started Pixar and the people who started uh, Adobe and some of the key Apple computer developers, that's where they all got their start. And many of the people who got rolling there were ones who had very choppy college transcripts. And there was one who said, I never got a B in a single class. I was always either an A or a C or an F. And <laughs> the subjects he liked, he did really well in the subjects he didn't like. Uh, he was defiantly bad. But you know what? Those kind of people in the right setting can do just fine. And I was impressed, certainly in those examples, but in a lot of others as well, of managers who were willing to take the chances on someone who didn't have everything but who had the most important things. I appreciate your approach to this book. As you went through this process, George, was there anything that surprised you? There's a lot that surprised me. I kind of expected in the beginning there to be one or two sort of magic trick questions that separated the great interviewers from the not-so-great ones. And what I found is there's no substitute for slow, patient, hard work. The, the, the people that I, I showcase to are really good talent scouts take a lot of time to form their judgments. They do it on the basis of lots of small clues adding up one after another. And if you think about it, it's almost like the detective cracking a case. That There's, there's often just a, a gathering body of evidence that points you in the right direction. So the fact that you had to be slow and patient, that really struck me. Uh, and then also it was just interesting to see how many themes you'd come across in different fields. Let me give you an example. So one of the things I talk a lot about in the book is the importance of resilience, of hiring people who have been able to bounce back from difficulties uh, previously in their life. So the first place I saw it was in the Army and how they pick out their special forces uh, soldiers. I also saw it in Teach for America and how they go looking for the best young teachers, and they're looking for people who can roll with the punches, who can make it through hard times, because they're going to ask them to teach in some very difficult school districts, and you need to be able to stick to your lesson plan when the heating doesn't work, stick to your lesson plan when you've got 34 kids and only 28 desks. You know, you've really got to be able to make a success of it in hard times. I found the same trait, resilience, crucial on Wall Street as well. If you're picking people to run your investments, you don't just want someone who knows how to make money when the market's going up. You want someone who can pull in their horns and avoid losing it all when the market goes down. So again and again, I kept running into resilience in settings where I least expected it. Was that top-of-mind awareness with them that they were looking for and screening for resilience, or is it something they just learned over time? It became top-of-mind, but in some cases it wasn't top-of-mind to begin with. And I had referenced Teach for America a moment ago. Originally, they were just looking for charismatic college graduates with good grades and ability to charm their interviewers. And that's all very nice, but those actually aren't necessarily going to turn out to be the most effective teachers. They had a very high dropout rate at that time. They'd bring in all these you know, eager young idealists, and they'd get to their classroom, and they'd discover that the kids didn't all like them, and that there were discipline issues, and the principal didn't always support them. And some of those potential teachers would just give up. 
So it was really only when Teach for America looked at the results and said, you know what, we need people with more staying power. And when they analyzed who were our best teachers, and they found out that the most successful ones often weren't all that charismatic. They just were really efficient and focused and able to make the system work. So I think uh, the importance of resilience in that case was something that was learned over time. But today, absolutely, it's top of mind. I mean, you can go on their websites, you can you know, start in on their application process, and you'll be told that you know, they are looking for tenacity. They are looking for people who, uh, who never give up. It's interesting you mentioned the themes, and, and you do discuss it in your book, that are, that are common amongst some of the top talent. And, and I'm curious, was there a triggering event that set them down this path of looking for these different traits, or was it a, just a conscious choice that, gosh, this isn't working, so let's go try something different? You know, I think we all do draw on our own personal experience. One of the people I talked to was Ernie Adams, who was Special Projects Director for the Patriots. And it happened that both Adams and a couple of the top coaches in the Patriots organization had family backgrounds that took them into the Navy, and not just any part of the Navy, but submarines. And let's spend a little time on that. Uh, what do you need most of all on a submarine? You've got to be able to get along with the rest of the people there. There's nowhere else to go. And if you guys are, are starting to have a lot of tension and disagreement and fights, you can't go take a walk on the deck. You're underwater. So, you know, what is one of the hallmarks of the Patriots? It's a team that was very cohesive. You didn't have a lot of squabbles among the players. You didn't have outrageous levels of conduct and selfishness that, you know, pitted one player against another. They held together. And where are you going to build up that priority? You're the the son of a submarine officer. Uh, You're going to hear a lot growing up about how important it is for the team to hang together. So, yeah, and you'll, you'll learn a lot by trial and error, and in some cases people simply tried a lot of different approaches. But I think the a common theme that came through is that people were able to draw lessons out of their own lives and to become more effective judges of talent by looking back on their own experience and identifying what had worked. Let's stick with our football uh, for just a second because uh, you touched on something that made me think about the fact that uh, let's take O.J. Cinco for uh, for example that people have said, well, look at the great talent he is. Look at the great talent that he has. And I've always contended, well, the person may be a great talent, but he sure can't get along with anybody. And football, last time I checked, was a team sport. So do you find companies make some of the mistakes that these NFL teams do? They're so attracted to this talent. No matter how gifted and talented the person is, we need to bring them on board. And, and then we find out sometimes they just don't fit in. You're absolutely right. And, in fact, one of the later chapters of the Rare Find is called When to Say No. A lot of the cases there are involved getting blinded by what you think is great talent, which turns out to be not the right talent for your organization. And I tell the story of you know, America's most elite university, Harvard, and its unfortunate case where it brought in a university president one time who had been a cabinet officer, who was a widely published economist, deep thinker, first-rate intellect, but diplomacy was not a big part of the skill set. And when you stop and think, what do university presidents really need to do? So much of it is smoothing the waters during periods of controversy. You've got some people in the faculty, they need to be the peacemaker. You've got alumni who are upset about something, they need to figure out how to deal with the issue in a way that preserves the integrity of the university and still you know, doesn't alienate a big part of their funding base. And Harvard paid the price for that. I mean, that's a president who lasted for four and a half years and left in a storm of controversy. 
And eventually they, they did the right thing and brought in someone who was also a strong scholar, maybe not quite as world famous, but who had superb diplomatic skills. And it's been a much calmer and uh, more effective campus ever since. So to, to come back to your point, uh, you know, there are lots of chattos, pochosenkos out there in any field, and they're very entertaining to follow. And at the top of their game, they do contribute a lot. But if you want to build a winning organization, you've got to have people who work well together, and you've got to be attentive to the soft skill dimensions of the job, you know, the, the getting along with people, the building consensus. And let me give you another one. As you get higher up in leadership, a big part of what you're looking for is the ability to influence people that you don't have direct control over. That What are you doing at the top? You can't just hire and fire everyone. You're dealing with regulators. You're dealing with key customers. You're dealing with license holders and patent holders, dealing with the competition. Uh, you can't just crack your whip and say, do it my way or I'm canning you. I mean, these are not people that report to you, but they're people who can change your destiny and your organization's destiny in a big way. They can make your future brighter or they can make it a lot darker. And you've got to be able to find some way of getting your message across gently, engagingly, in a way that makes them want to do it your way when you don't have the ability to issue ultimatums. So that kind of soft skill leadership is crucial, and it tends to be something that organizations don't always focus on. They're looking for you know, the, the take-charge person in the boardroom, only to discover that they end up getting a leader with no followers. Yeah, I always tell people that people generally don't get fired because they can't do the job. That, that's the hard skills. They get let go because the soft skills don't fit in. You know, we... Yeah, I, I would agree with you completely. That, that inability to get along with other people, that those levels of friction, the sense that this is someone who's just burning up way more management time than you'd like because they're, <laughs> they're always creating messes. And you, you need to be alert to that. You, you need to get a sense of who's going to be effective in the organization, not just who has the skills. Let's talk about John Hopkins, because you write it in the book that that's one organization that seems to have figured it out. What, what are they doing right? So there are a couple areas that intrigue me. And the first is how they put together their medical school classes. I and mean, they've got a shot at all the top pre-meds in the country. They can get the people who've got the finest scores on the medical college admissions test, the MCAT, people who had pretty close to straight A's, and they'll take some of those, but that's not how they will fill out the entire class. That they're also looking for people who've had really interesting and valuable life experiences that may make them better doctors regardless of whether they got an A in organic chemistry or not. So let me give you a couple examples. One of their most successful admissions was a woman who was actually a liberal arts major in college, ended up going to work as a detective in the Chicago Police Department, and came to believe that she wanted to be in medicine, did some catch-up work on our pre-med classes. She had a solid transcript. She didn't have an amazing one. But she ended up being a star in uh, the Hopkins medical class, both because of her influence on other students and because when she ultimately chose her specialty, psychiatry, I, who's going to make one of the best psychiatrists in the world, someone who's got both medical training and someone who's walked the streets of a big city seeing what happens when people go off track. And she's got an understanding of the, the human mind and the human condition to a degree that someone who's just worn a lab coat and stayed inside a hospital all their career does not. So I salute Hopkins for that willingness to reach out and to find people who bring something unexpected but valuable uh, into the world of medicine. I got a quote from your book. You say that sometimes even the CEO's resume should be read upside down. 
I just thought that was pretty humorous. So share with our audience what you meant by that. Absolutely. So what do you get when you read a resume upside down? You get people's personal interests, their hobbies, those offbeat achievements of you know, the medals and the prizes that they won in areas that are just far away from, from their main line of work. What you're really getting a window into is people's passions. And you're looking for people who have got a great deal of drive, of focus, of ingenuity. And some of that may be applied outside the workplace, given the choice between someone who's done everything right on the job, but who just doesn't bring that spark, and someone who perhaps has rattled around a little in the labor market but done something really interesting. Uh, a lot of times that second pool deserves a chance. I, I got this concept talking with one of the top talent executives at Google, and Google's a company that once again could hire you know people with whatever paper credentials it wants. But they like to read resumes upside down. They like to find the person who's run the Iditarod dog sled race three or four times. And you can do it once just to say you've done it. But if you're coming back and doing it year after year, I mean, that's cold, it's long, I mean, it's, it's a tough, tough road. And someone who keeps doing that, they've got perseverance. I mean, find the right job for them in your organization, and you know that's someone who's never going to quit and who, in fact, is going to keep coming up with ways to, to try harder and harder. What else do you find? You find the people who've you know, published their own books by age 16 or 18. Find the people who've won unusual contests, whether it's a spelling bee uh, or a computer coding contest. And, again, that desire to excel, that willingness to push in unexpected directions, it's a great way to find the people that otherwise you might not think about because they're great points a little bit less than you want or their years of experience aren't as impressive. But you find those diamonds in the rough, the people who could really light up for you if you can get them into the right job. So if you were to summarize our approach to looking for talent and, and what you found in doing your research and putting your book together, you know, what is the biggest issue that we're facing today in terms of finding top talent? So one of the, the one-sentence aphorisms I use in the book is be willing to compromise on experience, don't compromise on character. And I think coming back to that sense of uh, let's not get so rigid in the way we write up our nice-to-have list of all the things we'd like to have a candidate that either there's no one in the world who can do it, or in the end, if we find someone who's checked all of those boxes, they may be so fatigued or so stretched in so many directions that they don't really have the drive to excel at our organization. And I think I'd encourage anyone who's, who's doing hiring, think about the traits uh, of the people you're going to hire. What exactly do you want in that person just as a, a human being as opposed to a, a collection of uh, resume bullet points? So when I get out on the lecture circuit, I talk about seven lessons that I draw from uh, the examples of the rare find. And this comes back to the importance of hiring people who excel in terms of resiliency, desire to learn, efficiency, judgment, ingenuity, acumen, and fit and compatibility with your organization. And all of these are soft skill elements. I haven't told you how many years of experience they need or you know, what their college major needs to be. But I think if you find people who bring you most of those traits, you're going to find people who can be extraordinary employees for you. When you're out on the lecture circuit, is the feedback from the, those seven lessons you've learned from the writing the rare find? You know, I get a lot of heads nodding, and I get a lot of recruiters. This surprised me. I did not expect this. I get a lot of recruiters saying, you know, that's the way I've always wanted to hire. Those are the candidates I've always wanted to put in front of the client. Uh, I just haven't had the courage because I'm, I'm showing them people that may be a little different than what they expect. 
So when I develop terms like the jagged resume, what I'm really trying to do is give us a vocabulary so that we can talk about that unexpected candidate in a way that gets everyone around the table nodding, going, yeah, I'm willing to give that person a try, or, you know, tell me more, as opposed to, oh, that didn't totally match all of the, you know, experience uh, checklist grids that I have. Why are you even bringing up this candidate to me? So I'm encouraging people to be a bit bolder, to be willing to bring in the candidates where the key question is what can go right, as opposed to this is a totally bulletproof candidate. They just probably aren't all that amazingly good either. I understand there's a sequel to The Rare Find. Uh, you know, I did a, an ebook that came out just a couple months ago called Becoming a Rare Find that takes people into how you can manage your own career to put some of these principles to use. And it's aimed particularly at uh, recent college graduates or other people who are newer in the job market. And it talks about ways to make your own candidacy stand out. And if you have got a jagged resume, uh, what you can do to uh, still be seen as a very attractive hire. If people wanted to get the uh, ebook, how would they go about that? That is available on Amazon's uh, Kindle store. It's available through Apple's iTunes. And I think pretty much anywhere you can do a digital download, uh, it's available. George, when you're out on the lecture circuit, what is the number one question that people ask you? So people tend to bring the book back to their world. Uh, what should I be doing differently when I hire? And we've talked through some of, of those questions. People also want to know, how did you get started writing this book? And the answer is, goodness, I've been following the, the challenges of getting talent right, going back to the 1980s when I was writing about Wall Street, and pretty much every area I've written about, talent is sort of the, the universal language and the universal mystery. So whether I was writing about health care, college admissions officers, boy, that's an area where trying to get talent right is, is a great challenge because you're seeing people so early in their lives. And I remember being very interested in that when I was going through college, and then my interest sort of waned for a couple decades. And now that I've got teenage kids, the college admissions process is just fascinating me once again. So... No matter where you travel in your own life odysseys, you're going to see uh, some area where getting talent right is an area of great interest to you. You're in front of a company president or you're in front of a hiring manager. The one piece of advice you would give them today on finding the rare find? Be brave. I mean, that, that, in a way, encapsulates everything that we've talked about. I think there are too many people who are approaching hiring trying not to lose as opposed to people who are trying to win. And a lot of times your gut instincts will tell you when you're going in the right direction. They'll, they'll get you saying, you know what, that is a really interesting person. And then you talk yourself out of it because it doesn't match all 22 items on your checklist. And I would encourage people, when, when you see an opportunity, make the most of it. And the same thing the other way around. And you will sometimes get people who, whose credentials look very strong, and there'll be that little whispering voice that says, you know what, I'm not sure they really want the job, or I'm not sure they've got a personality that would work here. And then you'll talk yourself out of it and going, oh, but, you know, they've got such a great degree from such a great place. And then you'll end up with someone who's just not compatible with your organization. So I think we're closer to being able to apply these principles than a lot of people realize. That in a way, what I'm doing is taking some ideas that sort of rattle around on the edge of our awareness that, that are within grasp, and in some cases they're hidden in plain sight, and encouraging people to actually take the last hard step, which is to act on them. Is there one question today I should have asked you that I haven't? No, it's been a, a great interview. We've, we've covered a lot of ground. I appreciate the chance to come back and revisit the book after our last conversation. So hopefully we hit all the high points from last time around and added some new ones as well. Well, I think we did. And so if people 
Want to learn more about uh, George Anders and the rare find, how great talent stands out? Where should they go, George? So thanks to the wonders of the Internet, there are a lot of places to, to follow up. The first, there's an author book site, which is www.georgeandersbooks.com. You can follow my writing on Forbes, and I'll write a lot about new areas of talent that intrigue me. So just go to Forbes.com and put in my name, George Anders, and you'll be able to see my recent stories there. Uh, I'm on Twitter, at George Anders. So I'm, I'm always interested in having a dialogue with listeners and with readers. Uh, the author website will give you my email and follow up, and it uh, be fun to keep the conversation going. George, thanks for being on the program. Thanks. It's a pleasure. This or other BizTalk podcast may be downloaded by visiting our website, biztalkradioshow.com, where you can subscribe to BizTalk through iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at BizTalk1040 and like us on Facebook. If you want to learn the strategies finding and getting performance out of A-player salespeople, contact Performance Group by calling 800-950-9509 or visit us on the web at pmgllc.net. This has been your host, Jim Lovato.